that was the opening music from 20th Century Fox's 12 O'Clock High. And I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Bob Johnson, and we're glad to be back for another classic movie review. Yep. You can find us on iTunes. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews. Or on the uh, internet, ClassicMovieReviews.net. And uh, did you have any follow-up from the last uh, uh, podcast? Uh, no, not anything that comes to mind. Uh, the sound quality was better. Yeah, I thought so too. We're getting better with that each time we do them. but uh, Yeah, we're figuring it out. I think that was about the only thing. Yeah, I checked our stats and it looks like we're up to about 60 subscribers, so that's pretty good. We keep growing, <laughs> little by little. Slowly but surely. It really, in, in a way, it really doesn't matter because it's so much fun just doing these. Yeah, exactly. We could have two subscribers and I'd still want to do it. So, Hey, before we get started talking about the movie, I wanted to read something that was at the very beginning. And it's a title card. So there was no narration. It was just a title card that came up while the opening music was playing. Right. So uh, here we go. I, I think this is kind of uh, important to preface the movie with. So It said, This motion picture is humbly dedicated to those Americans, both living and dead, whose gallant effort made possible daylight precision bombing. They were the only Americans fighting in Europe in the fall of 1942. They stood alone against the enemy and against doubts from home and abroad. This is their story. And then it, uh, the movie starts after that. I, I didn't realize that they were the first Americans in the, in the theater, the European theater, fighting against Germany. As I recall, uh, there was a small number of bombers that were able to get over there fairly quickly, but there weren't that many. And the big production lines hadn't really started to produce the quantity that came later. So they were kind of out on an outpost, really. And I think the uh, the British did daylight bombing with their bombers, and then we had the B-17s. I'm not even sure we had the B-24s then, at least in uh, in England. I think those were B-17 bombers, right, in the movie? Yeah, they were. They were, uh-huh. And they use I, they use seventeen of them for the movie, real ones. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's yeah. They look they look beautiful. I mean, it's hard to find a B seventeen bomber that's in good shape nowadays. Uh, but back then, I suppose they had a few extras lying around. <laughs> yeah. Four years after the end of the conflict, yeah, there were probably a lot of them that were later scrapped. Well, there's actually a scene uh, in the movie where Gregory Peck talks about how they're laying the groundwork for what's going to come later. And he said that... Sure, we're guinea pigs, Jesse. But there's a reason. If we can hang on here now, one day soon, somebody's going to look up and see a solid overcast of American bombers on their way to Germany to hit the Third Reich where it lives. Maybe we won't be the ones to see it. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you that they'll be there if only we can manage to make the grade now. But that was part of what they were trying to do is prove that 
this these daylight bombing runs could work. It's so true. And I was reading where the, the main characters in the movie are all patterned after real life people that were actually in those jobs in 1942 and doing those uh responsibilities. You know, I was thinking about the opening of the movie. Again, I'm really hooked on music and how it how it really fits and, and supports the story because when it starts out, Dean Jagger is riding his bicycle out to the site where they had been. This is 1949. He's flying out there. He's riding out there. And the music starts. It's kind of a peaceful summer music. And then when he gets out on the landing strip it turns to this really dramatic score as the plane and then they they flash back to 1942 i love that part i do too in my mind i was imagining if they were to redo this movie today the special effects that they would have put into place to make it look like he was sort of almost traveling back in time and as he sort of spun around in the field i could just imagine like planes appearing and like the the bunkers and all that stuff appearing. But what they did instead was they just did a simple cut from him to the sound of the airplane engines and the propellers running and then the grass blowing behind, you know, what it would have looked like if there was a plane uh, taking off on the runway. And I thought that was a really effective way to do that without basically any special effects at all. Very simple and truly effective. And... Man, I the tension just ramps up like a hundred percent from this really peaceful sort of bike ride out to the field to basically they they crash a plane, right? They they a plane's coming in and its landing gear doesn't come down, so it has to crash into the field. Right. They they actually crash that plane with one stunt flyer on board. Uh, and nobody was sure how that was going to turn out. And I believe they paid that stunt flyer $4,500 to do that scene. Oh, man. In 1949. I'm surprised they were able to get away with that. Man, that's... It looked real, and I thought, how did they do that? Is that actual footage from the war? But apparently that was just done for the movie, huh? That was done just for the movie, yes. I would not have signed up to be the stunt flyer for that particular assignment. So another thing that struck me about this movie was that there was absolutely no graphic violence in the movie there was no blood that you didn't see anybody getting shot you didn't see anybody blowing up but one of the first scenes is after that plane crash is they run out to make sure everybody's okay and one of the uh captains on the plane says what are we going to do about the arm we must we mustn't go back easy with his right leg it's broken got, got, uh, easy now easy now you'll have to hold it we gotta care i've been sitting on it I wouldn't believe it if I wasn't looking at it. You can see his brain. The 20 millimeter hit it. Step on it, Doc. What do I do with an arm, sir? An arm? Whose arm? Ed Campbell's, the top turret gunner's. What happened to the rest of him? He's in a French hospital. I hope. He couldn't have made it home. It was blown off too close to put on a tourniquet. So I bailed him out. I put the ring in his good hand. Shoot open. That's all right. I'll take care of it. And then, I know. And then, uh, is it 
Dean Jagger Dean goes Jag- on the yeah, plane. Yeah, Dean, Dean Jagger goes on the plane and says, I'll take care of it. And I know. Uh, man. And the way that they described how the gunner had his arm blown off, but then they hoped he was okay because they put his par- they they put his good arm on the ring for his parachute and ejected him and hopefully he was in a French hospital and I thought to myself there's no way in hell he made that. There, I mean, his arm was blowing off. How is he going to land a, in a parachute into French-occupied territory and survive? But, uh, yeah, the tension went from zero to 100 right in the first 10 minutes of the movie. It really did. And from that idyllic pastoral scene to that horrible crash. And I guess, you know, to, to the best of my knowledge, that's probably exactly what it was like. Well, you know, another thing that struck me about the movie, again, I've never seen it before. I didn't know what to expect. I, I had no preconceived notions about the movie at all. But I could tell that everybody was on the edge of just having a like a nervous breakdown or a collapse. You know, they just all seemed like they couldn't take it anymore. Even the doctor that kept saying, you know, somebody's got to tell me, What's the maximum effort? He looked like he could go over the edge at any moment himself. It it had to be that way, I I would think. With every day they go off, and many of them will never come back. And and and, and here come you know this is the main plot point of the movie. I think, as you mentioned before we got started, this could have been a movie about anything because it's really a movie. I mean, the setting could have been something other than World War Two bombers, right? The the movie's really about how how they deal, dealt with the stress and the leadership qualities that were required and, and what people had to go through in order to survive. I, I think so. I mean, you could have it about some kind of strenuous political activity, uh, political campaign or business or just about any backdrop and have the same kind of issues around leadership, stress, and all of that. But, uh, what I like about it is that very thing. It, it really uses the war as kind of a vehicle to get to the more important issues on on leadership and, and just how stressful that whole thing was. Yeah, so the, the, the air commander at the time, uh, his character's name is Keith Davenport, played by Gary Merrill. And he's sort of cracked under the pressure and is relieved of command by the the general overseeing the whole operation. Keith, I know you're tired, but let's talk a little. Sit down. Let's talk about luck. A pretty critical three minutes, Keith. Five crews, 50 men. Do you think I don't know? I know you do. Whose fault was it, Keith? I told you, sir. Primarily, it was mine. Were you flying? Yes, sir. Do you fly and navigate to or do you rely on your navigator? You have to rely on your navigator, but after all... Then it was the lieutenant's fault. He missed the checkpoint, but it could have happened to anyone. I know, and I allow he feels as rotten about it as any of us do. More so, maybe. But what happens now, Keith? I don't understand you, sir. We're talking about luck. I don't believe in it. I believe that to some degree, a man makes his own luck. Yours has been pretty bad down here, and it's getting worse, not better. Maybe the navigator's in point. He blew it. What are you going to do about it? General, I don't believe in chopping off heads because of one mistake. Well, I just don't think that's any way to run a group. I feel sorry for the boy, Keith. 
What are the men in your group going to be thinking about the next mission he navigates? That he messed up the San Nazaire mission. It's just that much more load on them. And one day if they fall apart on you, that won't be luck. There isn't a man in the outfit who wouldn't stake his life on Zimmy. General, if it was anyone else but him, he's got two strikes against him to begin with. You don't realize, sir, that boy's got a persecution complex. He wants to fly every mission trying to live down the fact that his parents were mixed up in the German-American Bund. He screened Zimmy plenty before he ever got overseas. That's what's riding him now. Keith. Good navigators is the one thing we're not short of. If you decide that you ought to relieve this boy, I'll give you a good replacement. You might as well ask me to stand him up against the wall and shoot him in the back. No, I won't do it, sir. I just can't do it to him. I won't. Keith, I want you to get to bed. Have the flight surgeon give you a shot that'll make you sleep 24 hours. I guess a man only has so much to give, and I guess you've given it. Effective now, you are relieved of this command, and you will report to me for duty at Bomber Command. I'll send someone down to take over here. Good night, Keith. Good night, sir. And then Gregory Peck is brought in, and you made a note that he kind of get uh, Gregory Peck's character, Frank Savage, sort of transforms from what seems like a pretty nice guy to a really hard-nosed, take-no-prisoners kind of uh, really-take-charge commander. He really put on his uh, game face to go through the guard uh, gate, and then he, he really got, he really chewed out that guard at the front gate. know me, soldier? No, sir. Then why are you admitting me to this station? I saw it was a staff car, sir. Gurig could have been in it. There's my AGO card. The general may proceed, sir. Soldier, this is a military post, not a zoo. From now on, you'll check everyone who enters, and without exception. Take a good look at me. If you or any man on this post passes me up again without saluting, even if I'm a block away, you'll wonder what fell on you. You might pass that word around. Yes, sir. He, they mess, the message got through right away that he was now in charge. And, and he said many times throughout the movie that these, these boys have to grow up. You know, they've got to get, get, get out of their diapers and, you know, grow up. And it's hard to do that when you're only 21 years old, but it's the only way they're going to make it through. And I... I was thinking about that this morning before we started. There's a lot of similarity between how he takes over that command and how it was done in the movie Patton. George Patton taking over when George C. Scott had that role and he took over and went through the headquarters of the of the region and chewed out about half a dozen people because they were so sloppy. I found that to be very similar. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen Patton, but I, I do remember that uh, that that's kind of how he dealt with uh, taking over command. I thought it, I thought Gregory Peck was just amazing in this role. He's he was so believable. Totally, to I mean, they all were. I thought Gary Merrill. I mean, he looked like he was going to blow up from all the cigarettes and the coffee and the stress, <laughs> and he gets into a screaming match with his boss, the general, and. 
gets relieved of command, I'm thinking, I've got to believe that's the way. Again, that I think that's the way. It's so realistic. That's the way it was. It yeah. had to be. Oh, totally. Yeah, it seemed really, really uh, true to life. There's another scene where uh, Ben Gately, the character's name is Ben Gately, played by Hugh Marlowe, uh, gets a, another. He gets dressed down by uh, General Savage for basically deserting his command and deserting uh, the base to go out and get drunk. And uh, man, he really let he really let uh, Gately have it in that scene. You're the son of Lieutenant General Tom Gately, aren't you? I believe that's my standard identification, sir. What do you think of him as an officer? None better, sir. That's right. You're the son of one fine officer and the grandson of another. You're a graduate of West Point with nine years' service. Your Form 5 shows that you have more four-engine time than any man in the group. For those reasons, you could have done more than anybody to take the load off Colonel Davenport. The record shows that you've flown only three missions since you've been here. Is that right? If you don't count twice, I turn back, sir. I take it that you don't even care about the part you had in breaking one of the best men you'll ever know. Add to it, as air exec, you were automatically in command here the moment Colonel Davenport left. And you met that responsibility exactly as you met his need. You ran out on it. You left the station to get drunk. Gately, as far as I'm concerned, you're yellow. A traitor to yourself, to this group, to the uniform you wear. It would be the easiest course for me to transfer you out. To saddle some unsuspecting guy with a deadbeat. Maybe you think that's what you're going to get out of this, a free ride in some combat unit. But I'm not going to pass the buck. I'm going to keep you right here. I hate a man like you so much that I'm going to get your head down in the mud and trample it. I'm going to make you wish you'd never been born. Wasn't that something? And then Gately says, I have a right to uh, appeal this, and then picks up the phone and says, here. Call the general, and I'm sure your dad will be real proud of you too. It was, it was like, holy smokes! There was no doubt he didn't mince any words in in letting him know that he had failed in his his responsibilities. He sure didn't, and I thought that was uh, well done, and it tied in nicely to a scene near the end of the movie when Gately is uh, badly injured in a bombing run, but apparently, even though he was badly injured he goes on three more bombing runs and finally just collapses and ends up in the hospital with a fractured spine and this is where i think general savage again gregory peck's character uh his kind of takes a little bit of a turn he's not such a hard nose anymore and is starting to identify more with uh, the people under his command and you can see that when he visits uh, gately in the hospital later in the movie how are you feeling, Ben? I'm okay, General. I was sorry to hear about your bad luck. Thank you, sir. 
Well, I see Doc didn't waste much time. Oh, excuse me, Ben. Well, that's pretty sensitive, huh? That's okay, General. Go ahead and sit down. Oh, I'd rather stand. I've been piling up more sitting time than flying time anyway. What kind of a gadget is this? Part of the Wright Brothers' first airplane? Looks uncomfortable enough. Does that help the back any? Relieves the pressure quite a bit, sir. How long, uh, Doc, say you're going to be laid up? A few weeks, sir. Is it pretty painful? Not much, sir. I guess you don't feel much like talking. That's okay, General. Go right ahead. It see that was that was a very well done scene because when Gregory Peck's character, uh, General Savage, came in, he looked so uncomfortable coming into that ward, and he goes over and he kind of does a superficial greeting with two other wounded airmen, and then he walks over to Gately, and it's like, well, I guess I have to do this. And then he sits on the bed, causing Gately to have this huge pain. It was, it was kind of like, sort of turning the tables on him after that opening where he had had him arrested and chewed him out. But I thought, but at first I thought he was headed over to the hospital to chew him out again. Um, I, I, I feel like I felt, I felt okay. like as he, because he was going to storm into the hospital, then he stopped, and took a took a moment and was thinking about something smoking a cigarette and then he went in and and then it was like at that point he decided okay I'm not going to chew him out I'm going to I'm going to try to be nice to him and you're right he looked super uncomfortable trying to do that it was so forced but uh then then as after that little con- uh, conversation he goes out to the hallway to talk to the nurse and the nurse comes back in and says Looks like I'll have to rate you a Class A customer, Colonel. I just learned you're something extra special. You know, like he's going to get a I commendation know. or, you know, Medal of Honor or something. And then and then jumping way ahead near the end of the movie, Gately sort of comes in and does a lot to uh, keep General Savage from going on that mission because he completely melted down, had a breakdown. Uh, ben Gately's character went from being chewed out and being arrested by General Savage to then having that broken spine and being in the hospital. And then at the end of the movie, near the end of the movie, he steps in and keeps General Savage from injuring himself and get trying to get on that plane when he had that meltdown. So Gately's character throughout the movie made an enormous change in what everything about him from kind of a bad character to sort of a hero. Right, because he was a deserter almost at the beginning of the movie, and then by the end, he was one of the people uh, that him and Harvey Stovall, the Dean Jager's character, kept uh, General Savage from going out and basically getting killed on the runway because he was having a major meltdown, like you said. Uh, Uh, You know, there's another thing that made me laugh really hard. Uh, the, The guy that was the driver... No, no, it was not the driver, but it, it, oh, he was a driver. It was when General Savage first arrived at the base and he comes into the office and there's that kid behind the desk without his uniform on. Right, he was a stenographer secret, secretary, yep. And, and uh, the general just basically 
demotes him immediately from sergeant to private because he didn't he wasn't dressed appropriately and then a couple scenes later he's the dry he's going to be the driver for the general and the general says well uh i deserve a, a ranked officer I, I guess you should have your stripes back and then <laughs> and then later he gets demoted to a private again and then he gets promoted back to a sergeant and it's funny because general savage says I heard about those two FWs. Put the chevrons back on, Sergeant. Yes, sir. And if we're going to keep on having these ups and downs, I'd suggest you get them with zippers. Yes, sir. I know. I wish I could have. I, I should have thought to look up the name of the actor that played that role of the uh, sergeant slash private. He was always going, uh, getting in trouble with the general. That line about the zippers, though, made me laugh out loud. I thought that was really funny. The other one that I that caused me to laugh, uh, when the inspector general is going to, there's a potential of being a big investigation over holding up the uh, transfers of all the pilots. And uh, Gregory Peck and Gene, Dean Jagger have a conversation about this could get Jagger into trouble because he's kind of the administrative adjutant for the whole base. And, and, and he's also a lawyer. And he says to Savage, What a way to run an outfit. You red tape adjutants are all alike. That's right, sir. But Harvey, there can be trouble in this. I don't think so, sir. I never heard of a jury convicting the lawyer. I, that's a wonderful line. It's like he won an Academy Award for that role. Dean Jagger did. Oh, he was awesome in that role. And what I loved about his character, and I thought this was uh, again seemed really true to life to me, was that he was just upfront about everything that he was doing. Like he was drunk. And he comes into the a meeting with the general, and the general says, "Are you drunk?" And he says, uh, "Yes, I am, sir." <laughs> and I think he then he went on to say, "Didn't he say?" And I may get drunk again. And I and I may may do this again. Yeah, it was. Yeah, because it was just so stressful for him. Yeah, he was very believable, and he was very frustrated that he couldn't f- fight in the planes because he'd been in World War One and he was older. However, there's another scene where everybody on the base seems to try to figure out how to get on the plane and go on the mission, the first mission to Germany. I think four and of them. he's one of them. Yeah, four of them snuck on. The, the priest, uh, Dean Jagger's character. The uh, guy that was always in trouble, the sergeant private. The sergeant private, and then there was another guy too, I forget. But uh, yeah, that was so funny. I'm sort of jumping all over the sequence, but when they get back and they've all survived, and Gregory Peck says to Dean Jagger, Well, you're pretty proud of yourselves, I suppose. Well, let me tell I you. was hoping the general wouldn't go into this right now. I, I think I'm suffering from combat fatigue. Harvey, I'm going to weaken just this once. I'll probably live to regret it. But you got the bulge on me. I can't bust everybody. But it's with the clear understanding that your combat days are over. An old fud like you ought to know better. I won't be put in the spot of having to write that letter to your wife. You, Padre. Your business is sin. Hereafter, you'll confine your activities to that theater of operations. Is that clear? Yes, sir. 
you hit anything up there, Harvey? Well, sir, my glasses were frosted over some, but I think I got a piece of one. And Peck says, theirs? Or, or ours. ours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there was just the right amount of, uh, of uh, stress-reducing humor throughout uh, the movie. Great, great, great scenes. I mean, they're just one after another. Yeah, another one that I don't want to forget to talk about was uh, when General Savage first has has the first meeting with the entire group and lets them know what he thinks is going wrong, and he does that speech about fear. I've been sent down here to take over what has come to be known as a hard luck group. Well, I don't believe in hard luck. So we're going to find out what the trouble is. Maybe part of it's your flying, so we're going back to fundamentals. But I can tell you now one reason I think you've been having hard luck. I saw it in your faces last night. I can see it there now. You've been looking at a lot of air lately. You think you ought to have a rest. In short, you're sorry for yourselves. Now, I don't have a lot of patience with this what are we fighting for stuff. We're in a war, a shooting war. We've got to fight. And some of us have got to die. I'm not trying to tell you not to be afraid. Fear is normal. But stop worrying about it and about yourselves. Stop making plans. Forget about going home. Consider yourselves already dead. Once you accept that idea, it won't be so tough. You know, and if, if anybody in this room thinks their hide is something special to be saved, let me know because I don't want them part of my group. I just thought that was a great speech. We've sort of been all over the map with this because it there's so many scenes and so many pieces to it. It's hard to do it in a linear fashion. Well, it is. It, it's uh, and and scenes that happen earlier in the movie sort of tie into scenes that happen later in the movie. And there's this arc that happens with many of the characters. Yes, like with uh, General Savage, and then also with uh, Harvey Stovall. Uh, although I thought Harvey was the most sort of even keeled one throughout the whole movie from the very beginning to the very end. He, he just sort of seemed like that rock that they could lean on. He really did as opposed to, or compared to Ben Gately, Hugh Marlowe's character or Keith Davenport's or Gregory Peck's where they, they had major changes in, in, in how they acted and how they behaved. He was pretty much, I think it was also a, a reflection that he was older. He was probably the oldest guy on that base. Because most of these kids were twenty-year-olds. Yeah, and he'd been to combat in World War One, so he sort of knew a little bit more what to expect. I would think. Yeah, I, I agree. So uh, one of the th- uh, one of the things I wanted to mention too, uh, there's like you said, there's so much. It's hard to fit this into one episode, but um, you know, there's so much focus now on post-traumatic stress syndrome, and. You know, back then they they called it combat fatigue or shell shock, or they had different names for it. But the the remedy for any of that any of those descriptions was just to buck up, be a man, get back out there. You know, just deal with it. And there was a scene that really stuck out to me when uh, Davenport and the Doc, and there's another character or Harvey, I think are all talking to General Savage about... He's sort of in this catatonic state, and they're trying to tell him, uh, 
just snap out of it, you know? I, I oh, yeah, I think, the th- I think the three are Dean Jagger, Hugh Marlowe, and Gary Merrill. I think they're all yeah. in that room together. And they're talking about what, you know, the fact that he's in shock. Uh, and then right after that, there's a scene where Davenport kind of yells at the general just to snap out of it and that you're, you know, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors by trying to deal with this all yourself, but. Frank, try and listen to me. I know what you're feeling. I know just what you're feeling. You think you blew it. What do you expect of yourself, Frank? Look, look, I saw something in those kids' faces at briefing this morning. Something I never put there. You were going to make them grow up, remember? Well, they were this morning. You think you aren't up there with them? Look, you're riding at every crew station and in every cockpit. That's right. Don't listen to me. Just sit there and do it the hard way. Tell yourself a hundred times a day that you blew it. Make yourself believe it. Take it to bed with you. Eat your guts out until you're all hollow inside. Don't let anybody help you. I, you know, it's they they really didn't know how to deal with that back then, did they? They, I don't think so. Remember that scene at the near the beginning of the movie, where uh, Gregory Peck is talking to the doctor, and he's and he kind of yells at the doctor, "Paint him with iodine and mark him okay." Yeah, because he didn't know either. He just said, "We're going to fly him until they collapse." And the 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 big general, Millard Millard Mitchell's character, I believe the actor is, said, "We've got to find out how far we can push these." These are men, and we need to find out in a hurry because there aren't many of us here. I don't think any of them knew. No, and that's that maximum effort that, that they kept talking about. And I think that they said, well, I guess he'd given his maximum effort when they're talking about General Savage, and he's like catatonic. Yeah, I think, I maybe, I think maybe he did give his maximum effort. <laughs> there, there, there were several of those people. Another character that, that I, I liked a lot was the uh, guy that took over for Ben Gately. He's, his, in the movie, his name was Cobb. Yeah. And he was kind of a tough guy, and he really wanted to have it go right and wanted to support Savage. And I think on that last, not the last mission, but the mission before that, that they actually had the filming of the planes and the uh, dogfights in the air, his plane blew up. Cobb's plane blew up and he was lost. And I think that was the trigger point for Savage to have his meltdown. Because I remember he wiped his face with his gloves and he was just overwhelmed when they saw the plane just explode. And when he came back from that and then they had to go out the next day, he couldn't do it anymore. So to me, the breaking point was that explosion on that mission when Cobb was killed. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think he'd come to really love and, and identify with all those men and that it was just yeah. too much for him to see see him get killed like that and uh and I think they made a comment later that it's just natural that that would happen. But you know, Gregory Peck coming into it was like I'm not these are just resources at my command. We can't we can't get too attached to them we just have to get our mission done but i think that's just it's impossible it's like human nature to become attached to these people after going through so much with these bombing runs and and the stress and the fatigue and all that and it was non-stop and there there weren't that many of them at a, at a base they had 
I think in one squadron they'd have 21 bombers, so that's 210 people plus the ground crew and all. So it couldn't have been more than 500 per squadron. Yeah. And you never know how many, in that one mission, 50 of them are killed. Oh, man. The very opening of the movie. That's a, that's a holy t- smokes. 10% of the base was gone after that. There were some neat little scenes with, like, the support crew. Uh, if you if you watched for it, like the nurse, the scene with the nurse, and, and the, mm-hmm. this, the, there was a couple women serving coffee in the commissary. And you kind of got this feeling of the life that, sort of surrounded these these men and a few there were just i think maybe three or four women in the whole movie and they barely had any role at all so these guys are just surrounded by their comrades and 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 that's pretty much their whole life was just on the base and doing these missions so it must have been just a tremendous amount of pressure for them another scene like that that i really enjoyed is when they're out on that mission that we do see the actual dogfights and all the ground crew is back at the uh, at the Archbury, and they're hitting softball out to the different ground crew members and tossing it around, all watching the skies to see how many of those planes are going to come back. That was another. It said a lot about what was what that was like, and then they all raced out to the planes as they started to land the ambulances and the fire trucks and all. Oh yeah, and, and it even just very well done. Even the cook, you know, as soon as he heard the right. roar of the engines, he he comes out and and is counting planes in the sky. So everybody was just so enmeshed in in this life. This was uh, another thing that Gregory Peck said in that first meeting with all the 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 group was, just consider yourself dead now. It'll make it a lot easier for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's it. That blew me away when I saw that. I saw this a long time ago, the first time, and every time I see that scene, it's like amazing to me. It's so direct. Uh, so I mean, the the story the, the the story for this movie was written by two people that were actually in that situation. So they took it and made it into a a book, and then they sold it to Twentieth Century Fox, probably, and they were involved in the screenplay. So I think that added more realism to it. And then I was reading where a lot of generals and admirals have seen this movie, and they all say that it, it it's perfectly uh, depicting what was going on at that time. And they've used it in all kinds of training over leadership and issues of stress and war and death. So Yeah, you said that it's uh, situational leadership theory uh, is... You put that in quotation marks in your notes. Is that is that an actual sort of uh, line, I believe of, line it is. of training and thinking? I believe it is because I was reading about the movie and what, what uh, it was used for in different branches of the military and also in business organizations, and they, they referred to it as situational leadership theory, how you, how you handle stressful uh, situations that you're placed in. And uh, to my knowledge, they, it still could be used for that today, although it may be a little dated with the equipment and all. But for decades, it was it was very it was used in a couple of the military academies for training classes because it was so well done. It's almost like a documentary. It really is. Yeah, it could be. Uh, I think I think the fact that they don't show a lot of the combat just adds to that aspect of the movie about 
I mean, the movie's really about the, the leadership of the group and how they deal with the stress and how they get everybody on board with the mission. Totally that way. And yet, it's so well done that it doesn't become, like, uh, boring or or too... too philosophical or repetitive or whatnot. I have I have three other movies that are in this same vein, I think, that uh, people might enjoy watching if they haven't seen it, although I imagine most of our listeners have seen these. One is Mrs. Miniver that was made in 1942. And then another one, The Best Years of Our Lives, which was made in 1946. Both of those movies have very little about what the actual war fighting was like, but they're hugely influential, at least to me, in terms of making the statements about the war. And then one that was made the same year as 12 O'Clock High Battleground uh, with Van Johnson, made in 1949, another excellent movie. Those are, I think, the four best movies of the era about this. Um, and also, Ricardo Montalban is in Battleground. <laughs> our hero from the Wrath Khan. of Khan movies, yeah. <laughs> the Star Trek <laughs> villain. So. I, I haven't seen those, so I'm going to put those on my uh, to-do list to watch. So that's that's the great thing about this podcast is I'm really filling out my movie watching experience through being able to see these and talk about them. So what would you? I know what you're going to give this as a rating. I I can only guess, right? I put it in my notes. It's a 10 out of 10. Yeah, it's I would, a thumbs up. I'd give it a 10 out of 10 as well. It's, I didn't see anything in it that seemed like a false note to me or just seemed out of place. I just thought it was amazing. We've done a lot of really good movies. We haven't done any that are, you know, truly bad. Of the ones that we've done so far, I would say that 12 O'Clock High and Double Indemnity are my two highest rated of the group that we've done so far. But it's a close call because they're all so good. Oh, I think those are the two best. I, I really like Stagecoach, too. And, and I mean, as, as cheesy as uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon is, I, I, still, <laughs> I still really like that movie, too. <laughs> Which reminds me, did you get any of the grandkids to watch 12 O'Clock High, or are they off doing other things? Oh, I barely had enough time to watch it myself, so I didn't have a chance to get them in on this but i i think it might have been a little too uh much dialogue and not enough action i oh you're right plus the intensity of it might be uh a bit much too at their ages but i don't know if they'd pick up on that because you'd have to kind of understand more what was going on i mean they've seen some pretty intense that's true movies but i think it's been more intense with the action where this and was more special effects. and this is more psychologically intense like the the tension between the characters and and if you know you know what's going on with World War II it just adds another layer to it that you know they they I think Gregory Peck said we're in a, a war a shooting war we have to fight it's not like they had an option you know so it just right. that added that extra layer of tension to the movie so next episode um uh, uh, we're going to do wrath, uh, not Wrath of Khan. No, totally, <laughs> totally different movie. We're going to do Grapes of Wrath. And the reason that we're doing that is it's the 75th anniversary of the book this year. And I was listening to NPR and 
apparently Grapes of Wrath is the most censored book still to this day uh, of any any book. And so, uh, really, so I wow. think it'd be interesting to watch the movie. And I, it's been a long time since I read the book or seen the movie, so it, it it'll be nice to revisit that. And we can talk about why we think it might be censored as much as it is. It's another excellent movie done by one of our favorite directors, John Ford. Ah, yes, John Ford. One of my favorites. He's done so many good movies. So in two weeks, we'll do Grapes of Wrath. And then two weeks after that, we'll do another movie. But we'll figure that out later. Figure that out later, right? Well, this has been fun. Absolutely. So, uh... Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, you've been listening to Classic Movie Reviews at ClassicMovieReviews.net. And until next time, I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Bob Johnson. Happy movie watching. Ha- happy movie watching. Oops, I stepped on your line. Ah, no problem. See you in two weeks, everybody. That was the opening music from 20th Century... Oh my god, I can't say... I had a hard time with this last time. Let me try again. That was the opening music from 20... Alright, one more time. That (laughs) That was the opening music from 20th Century Fox's 12 O'Clock High. Alright, awesome.